Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. We all know the stats. Women make up more than half of the population around the world, and yet we are dramatically underrepresented in government, in business, and in leadership positions. But we also know that when women lead, amazing things happen. Today, I talk with several of those leaders who work with vital voices. This amazing organization invests in women leaders in every corner of the globe, and the work they do is changing the world. We'll hear from Elise Nelson, the president of Vital Voices, Lena Khalife, founder of She Fighter Self-Defense for Women, Isra Al-Shafi, a Bayrani activist fighting for LGBTQ rights in the Middle East and North Africa, and Ka Wala, the first woman to run for president in Cameroon. Each of these women have stories of power and pain, and I hope you'll listen well. I have a story. Tell me the story. I have a story. Tell me the story. I have a story. Tell me the story. I hear people saying, women have finally found their voice. Let's just be clear. Women have always had a voice. I was walking on the streets and one guy had stalked me and he attacked me. So in 2006, I launched Majal. A new idea, an ecosystem of unique digital platforms. These four platforms that together make up Majal are designed to amplify the voice of oppressed populations to create communities around the most daunting issues people here face every day. It was then that Navala felt small and alone. She felt powerless. So she called out to her ancestors. How can we solve these problems? First... You want to always be aware of your surroundings. We start with balance. Make sure you're grounded. Then we move to the psychological. If you think like an attacker, then you know how to react. I'm Elise Nelson, President and CEO of Vital Voices Global Partnership, and I believe that women lead differently, and that difference is precisely what our world needs today. Sorry, not sorry. So Elise, tell us about Vital Voices and the work that you do. So what Vital Voices does is we search the world for women who have a daring vision for change. She could be a human rights leader who is working to help rehabilitate survivors of human trafficking. She could be a woman who is leading a a social enterprise in India and lifting a community out of poverty. She could be a political leader 
but it's a woman who has this bold vision for change and she probably feels isolated. She might feel sort of alone in her bold vision. And what we do is we come up underneath her and we support her through training, through mentoring and network of her peers, visibility, credibility, and financial support to help her to take that bold vision to scale. And what we believe so strongly is that one of the reasons development has failed around the world, why we have not been able to solve world hunger or the environmental challenges or gender-based violence is that often development organizations will come into communities and say, we know all the answers to your problems here. We know it because we are from a completely different place. Right. And then right. we try and solve it, right? And we are we are just big believers that you can only change what you know. And you really have to work with community leaders side by side, supporting their vision, giving them the tools to make that happen. And We've been doing this for 23 years. I've been with the organization since the beginning. I'm one of the co-founders. So I've really grown up. I'm a product of the organization. And what I've seen over the years is we've supported more than 18,000 women over 182 countries at a very deep level is that no matter our differences across culture, religion, age, socioeconomic background, sector, we lead in this very different way. What we began to discover really after the first decade of our work is that there was this commonality between a, a peace leader in Northern Ireland and a graffiti artist in Brazil, something that connected them. And it was this way in which women were leading change. And it was, it was just this different style. And it was very much about putting empathy first and community first. Mm. You even say the word empathy and you talk about leadership. Ten years ago, people were like, what? empathy and leaders can't have that. You have to be a strong leader. You can't show emotion. I mean, now I think management theory has certainly caught up to that. And so I think people get that you've got to have empathy as a leader. But we saw that women were stepping up to right or wrong in their community. They were collaborative. They were, as I say, empathetic. They were compassionate. And they were stepping up motivated by that desire to seek power, to empower others. And that this form of leadership, this way of leading needed to be amplified. And that's probably one of the biggest discoveries that we've made along the way in supporting these leaders. And it's also why we are so committed to scaling what we do, being able to reach out to and support even more leaders. Was what if not only did women enter the workforce, but we saw women, more women in the so-called C-suite. What they found was that if there were more women, for two, two points, more female CFOs in the firms, in firms that they studied over a 17-year period, they saw that those firms were $1.8 trillion bigger than the market overall. They also found that looking at female CEOs in, the, in, um, in these firms, that uh, there was more diversity. About twice as many women were on the board than uh, the overall market. Well, I love that you call them leaders because I think often we think leadership and we think, I don't know, our boss or a CEO or some kind of political personality or candidate. And we forget that leadership also exists in social programs and activism. Absolutely. Often these women don't see themselves as leaders. Right. And that's probably one of the first things that we do is say, wait a minute, you are absolutely a leader. You are changing people's lives for the better. What do you think leadership is if it's not that? You know? Right. So 
it's important to, I think, show them that because you're right. What they'll see in their country is you're a leader if you're elected to political office or if you have the corner office or yeah. the title of a CEO. Well, can you talk a little bit about the differences in how women lead? Yeah. So I think the first thing that we see are women will have a more difficult time stepping up, right? So there are more barriers to them leading, whether it's running for political office, whether it's running a new organization, whether it's raising money for a new company, right? The risks, the challenges are greater in every country around the world for women. That also has to do with, you know, just culturally where these women live. Absolutely. Absolutely. What that equates to is that when women do step up, it's often because they see something that gets under their skin, right? They decide, okay, I'm going to run for elected office because I really did not like that last election. Or I'm going to start up a nonprofit that deals with combating violence against women because I was a victim of domestic violence, right? I mean, it is from that personal, right, that begins that journey. And I think when leadership starts from that place, that really pure place of just wanting to right a wrong and make sure that other people don't have to go through the challenges that you went through, I think that's the purest form of those seeds of leadership. From there, I think women are really great at crossing lines that divide. See it Mm. all the time in our Congress where it will be two women kind of behind the scenes who are from different political parties, but know that we agree on this one thing. And that one thing means so much to us. It's the reason we ran for political office. It's, it's what keeps us up at night. It's what's hurting our children's future. And they can kind of put the ego of it or the politics of it aside and come together. We find that some of the biggest, boldest breakthrough ideas come from the most marginalized because they don't know status quo. They're outside the box. They don't even know there is a box, right? Right, right. So, you know, they're going to have those big ideas. And, you know, you think about it, we haven't solved our climate crisis. We haven't solved gender-based violence. We haven't solved so many issues. And we need those external thinkers who just might have those solutions. We need them to come from the fray to the center. Finally, I think what we see with women is really this desire to pay it forward. So every time we work with women leaders, they'll go home and say, well, I've got to give this away. I've got to give this back. I have to bring more people into this circle. They don't want to keep anything for themselves. It's really this idea of power expands the moment shared. A total of 273 women were on the ballot in the 2018 midterms, representing both parties. Now compare that to the past five elections. That's a big jump in women candidates vying for office. So women must be pretty well represented in the U.S. government now, right? Not exactly. The share of women in the House and Senate has increased over time but it's still well below the share of women in the U.S. population. And if you dig deeper, Congress looks even less representative. Women of color make up 18% of the U.S. population. But before the 2018 midterms, they accounted for just 7% of Congress. And LGBT women make up about 2.5% of the U.S. population. But there are only two openly LGBT women in Congress. That's less than 1%. Even with the recent wins by women candidates in the 2018 midterms, there's still a long way to go before they're fully represented. I look at someone like Jacinda Ardern, the prime minister in New Zealand, 
first, the way that she dealt with the terrorist attack on her country, yeah, the way that she wouldn't name the terrorists, that was, you know, yeah, have she's you ever amazing. Seen, you know, have you ever she's seen amazing. Her? We will not talk about their names. And then also the way that she's dealing with this crisis. She is incredibly humble and empathetic and just real. Like you really feel like she's telling you the truth. This authenticity just, I think, is, is one of her great strengths. And I think just this very clear, nobody panic. This is what we're going to do and we're going to be better for it. I think she's really good also at hope and inspiration, which people need. People need in times like this. They need to know we're all in this together and we're going to get back and we can do this. We've done things like this before. We've done things that have been harder than this before. Did you see that the princess in Sweden actually took an online nursing class and entered into the front line of fighting this pandemic? It's the most amazing thing. I was like, this is brilliant. She's a princess. And she was like, you know what? Nope, I'm going to take an online class and I'm going to really make a difference. And it's just spectacular. The majority of frontline healthcare workers around the world are women. Yeah. And actually in China, I think the number is like 90%. It's just massive. And then there's also that stat that the countries that have been least hit as far as numbers go with COVID-19 have women leadership. Yes. So I'm wondering if you could shed a little light on how the challenges women face around the globe are maybe similar or different. Well, certainly you've been a huge champion around combating violence against women and sexual assault and harassment. And that is, in my mind, the biggest challenge women face. Globally. Yeah, globally. There is no country, no community, no religion, no socioeconomic background of women anywhere on earth who are not affected by gender-based violence. I mean, that's just it. Full stop. That is the only issue that seems to get worse, not better over time, right? We're going to get more women elected into political office. More women are going to start and grow businesses. People are going to see, oh, wow, this is great for the economy. Okay, yes, let's keep funding. You can see steps forward on many of these issues. But on violence against women, I mean, the harder hit humanity is, the deeper violence against women grows. Right now, with this crisis, in China, triple, they had triple the cases really at the epicenter of COVID. They had triple the cases of domestic violence in the height there of the virus. And that is not a coincidence. It is a fact that when people lose their jobs and anxiety and stress is running high, there will be violence against women. There will be domestic violence, violence against children as well. And then, of course, you add to that being in lockdown with an abuser. I mean, it's just a Oh, it's horrifying. Disaster. Yeah, it's horrifying. Yeah. So to me, I mean, that's, that is the biggest issue. And of course, it takes different forms in different places. You know, In the DRC, you have rape as a weapon of war and other countries ravaged by war like Syria or Iraq. In places like Afghanistan, you have girls being hung just because they're girls, girls being burned with acid, rape, certainly by strangers, by partners, by boyfriends, by acquaintances, college campus violence, sexual violence, child marriage, honor crimes female genital mutilation, it takes on a different look in different places. 
but we run something called an emergency assistance fund for extreme forms of gender-based violence. It's called Voices Against Violence Fund. And we will open up the fund and literally the cases and it's small bits of money that we can get out the door within 24 to 48 hours to quickly help a woman get back on her feet. Nadia Murad, who is the Yazidi woman who escaped ISIS in Iraq back in 2014, she was actually one of the first people to receive one of these just very quick infusions of financial support to help her family and she get health care relocation. You know, her brothers had been killed. Most of her family was killed. Mm-hmm. But just to kind of build back something. And I'm allowed to tell her story because she tells her story. And obviously winning a Nobel Peace Prize a number of years later for suing ISIS. But there's a fund that we continue to run. And the number of cases is just through the roof. And we, you know, quite frankly, we need more money for the fund. Yeah, believe me, I would rather be preventing these Right. You know, I mean, why should we, it, you know, we're throwing money at a problem rather than trying to get at a solution, but we're doing both. Let me ask you this. The numbers are just staggering, but do the numbers go down when women have power? I'm thinking about just even in the United States and domestic violence and violence against women. And we have some really incredible women that are fighting in Congress and in Senate. And yet these numbers are still mind blowing. You know, we fight so hard to get a seat at the table. And then I'm wondering, do you see changes within the community? Do you see that numbers go down? What is the tangible evidence of that this is this is shifting or changing? Well, certainly I think when the economy is strong, right, when other things are stable, that is certainly better. But that shouldn't have to be the case for things to be better. I mean, there should be that humanity I think one of the challenges, honestly, with violence against women is what I would call and what one of the women leaders we work with calls the silent majority. The silent majority is the majority of men who are good and who believe that violence against women should never stand, but they don't do anything about it, right? Mm. Well, I don't know anybody, you know, that one, that maybe they don't know enough about it. Maybe they don't think there's a place for them to be part of the fight or the Mm. struggle. And I think it's about how do we engage those men to recognize that this is a human problem. And that they're part of the solution. They have to be part of the solution. Otherwise, things will never change. Yeah. So honestly, I think you see some of the greatest leaps forward when uh, powerful men or innovative, influential men get it. And they don't just get it in like a check the box way, but they they really get it on a fundamental level. And every decision that they make, it's somewhere in the calculus of how they're making those decisions. And that's a big piece. We run an awards program each year called the Voices of Solidarity. And it's really about honoring those great guys who are in the fight. I love that. And often risking their livelihoods. We honor men all around the world. There's some great CEOs and leaders that we've honored, but there are also different young guys. I don't know if you're familiar with the nail polish undercover colors. No. You dip it into a drink and it will turn a color if your oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. drink has been roofied, right? Yes. And so these guys came up with this formula basically so that the nail polish would turn a color if it was. And, you know, these are just young college guys, but they had a personal experience with a friend who had been drugged and raped in college, and they decided to do something about it. 
it's kind of engaging men at different levels and doing good. I think that can make a huge difference. I think when you talk about some of the specific success stories that you've had with Vital Voices, the businesses that women have started or the leadership that they've taken, you know, control of, it feels like they're able to help so much more than just their little circle. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit to that, how when you help one woman, it affects how many people? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, there's women that we've worked with who have an idea to start a business. And the idea is, yeah, sure, it's profit making, but I think initially it's really about solving a challenge. Thinking of one woman that we work with in India, Kanksha Hazari, who recognized that throughout India and some of the more remote villages, people would have access to a cell phone, but they didn't have you know, clean drinking water. And so what she decided to do is she realized, okay, to fill up these cell phones with minutes, they go to these little kiosk stores and they pay some sort of cell phone provider to be able to get so many minutes to speak on the phone, to be able to text, whatever it might be. And she realized, okay, well, wait a minute, we could start a loyalty program because everybody thinks about this, oh, the bottom billion, but, you know, they're not really, you know, an economic force, but actually they are the rising economic force. And so she started a loyalty program where various cell phone companies would buy in and someone from the community would help contribute so many points to their community towards building a new water well. And then the cell phone carrier would come in and build that new water well. That's amazing. Yeah, amazing. And, you know, these are just, you know, it's such a great idea where, you know, she realized, wow, the experience that they have is so different than the experience that I had in the very same country. And everyone should have access to these things. And why have we denied this segment of the population? And so she actually works with all of these small sort of kiosk, mom and pop, little little tiny stores. She works on loyalty programs. She works on representation. She helps them to do advertising. But at the same time, she is mapping a segment of the population that right. is unknown. You know, that has no credit, maybe even has no birth certificate. She's really mapping this whole segment of the population that has been discounted when actually they're this incredibly powerful economic force. And that has infected the lives of, of millions of people across India. And she's hoping to be across the entire country within the next couple of years, which is extremely exciting. You know, you, you That's know, amazing. You, a lot of these women, I meet them and I immediately think I just want to quit my job and go work for them. And then I know, right. okay, yes, we need to be investing in them. <laughs> I can't quit my job and go work for them because there's so many others that we are investing in and supporting. How can people support Vital Voices? Where can we find you and the amazing work that you're doing? So you can go to our website and you can obviously follow us on social media. Our website's just vitalvoices.org. Sign up for our newsletter, sign up for a daily podcast that we started actually just a few days into lockdown. It's called Voices of Resilience, where we interview extraordinary women and how they're getting through, uh, what they're doing, what they're seeing from this country and around the world. 
And it really shows how women are really resilient in these times and how critical their leadership is. Certainly, you can contribute to our work. That's always very important. Like any other sector, we are hard hit in times of crisis, and it's hard to predict exactly where the economy will be and how giving people will be in the future. And I think if you can spare to contribute to Vital Voices, to any of the women leaders we support, or to other charities and nonprofits, it's an important time to do that. Well, Elise, thank you so much for all the work you do and for being a part of the podcast. Hi, my name is Lina Khalife. I'm the founder of She Fighter. I teach women how to defend themselves from different types of violence. And I'm sorry, not sorry. So I met Lena at an event for Vital Voices, and I was just in awe of Lena's story. She's an incredible woman that is changing, I think, not only the lives of women throughout the world, but also the narrative around domestic violence and a woman's position in countries that are sometimes socially unaccepting of women's strength. You grew up in Amman, Jordan, right? Tell me what that was like. So, yeah, I grew up in Jordan, the Middle East, and I started practicing Taekwondo. It's one of the Korean martial arts when I was five years old. It was my passion, and I was very focused on training and developing my self-confidence. Was that an uncommon thing for a five-year-old girl to take up in Jordan? Yeah, it was mostly dominated by men. And, you know, like martial arts is usually dominated by men. So we were like maybe four or three girls in the classroom. And it kept going like this number for a while. But now I would say martial arts and fighting for women has uh, developed a lot. And there's so many women in these dojo studios We find more women now, but long time ago, yeah, it was different, different uh, case. And did you have any strong mentors or figures that you looked up to? At the beginning, it was hard to find a good coach and a mentor and a master, I would say, in training. It took me, like like my parents had to change different uh, schools, Taekwondo schools, until I found one best coach. And I kept training with him for so many years. So, yeah, it took a while. Like, um, you cannot find really good mentor from the beginning. How do you feel that Taekwondo actually impacted your childhood and nurtured the woman that you became? Definitely, it helped a lot because martial arts, Taekwondo has developed a lot in my self-confidence and I would say my focus, my respect, taking responsibilities in life and not quitting. That's something really important that a lot of people start something now and after a while they... They just quit on it. And it like it gave me a lot of self-confidence boost. And for a teenager, you need that because you're going to get into different challenges, you know, like uh, friends, society, school. And you need to develop this kind of strength to move on in life later on. I'm going to do the she shout. We're going to shout together. OK, I really want you to shout really loud. OK, so hands up. Don't hit each other. <laughs> okay. I have four inch heels. If I can do it, you can. Let's do it. She ball. Okay, my grandma can shout louder. Can you shout really loud? Let's do it again. (laughs) She pulls. She pumps. She elbows. She elbows. She angry. She angry. She kicks. She kicks. She fighters. She fighters. Woo! 
Go back a little bit and tell me about the idea for She Fighter and how that came about. I started She Fighter in 2012, and I started it because one of my friends was abused while I was studying at the university. She came to university one time. She had bruises on her face. She was being beaten up by her brother and father. I was just mad about the situation of women, that they're not standing up for themselves. And she said, we cannot do anything. Women are weak. And I decided since I have a background in martial arts, I'm going to do something about it. Even if it's like small steps, I did not think it's going to grow that big. Later on, it became a huge movement uh, of different trainers globally. And I started training more and more women. That's how I started. I started very, very small with an idea. And it grew to become different, uh, even like uh, branches, trainers all over the globe. What is it like living in the Middle East as a woman? Can you just paint that picture? Yeah, there is a good and bad side to everything, right? So the I would start with the good side. So living in the Middle East as a good thing for a girl, there is also the educational. So like you can still get education. So this is good. And there's a lot of also parents that support girls more than even boys. Boys has to do all the tough work and they have to work a lot. They have to take a lot of other responsibilities. And girls, I would say they do not have that much responsibilities on their shoulders. But it also, it turns out really badly later on as you grow up, because let's say you do not want to take this responsibility and suddenly men will start having and gaining a lot of power and money, and then they can control Mm. other women because they do not have this power. I'm also working on that changing women's, I would say it's, it's so hard, but even when I when I was sitting with Queen Rania talking about it, the Queen of Jordan, and she mm-hmm. told me, you know, it's so hard to change women's mentality and the culture. I kept telling her it's getting better. Like 10 years ago, it was different. Now it's getting better. And women need more role model just to look up to. That's right. You know, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Yeah. So really, this was an idea that you felt inspired by a friend who was being hurt in her home And you said, this doesn't have to be this way, and started basically a almost, you know, a a social revolution where women are empowered not only physically, but also within their positioning in society to understand that their worth, their confidence is worth so much more than what situation they've been thrown into. Yeah. It's pretty powerful. I don't know if, because you're so humble, I don't know if you really can get a, a grasp of how monumental what you've been able to do is. And just this, I want to go back to something you said, what you said before about if, if you're starting something, there's going to be people that support you and many people that are against you. Yep. And if you're speaking truth, I think that's true as well. Yep. And I so often get this question of like, how do you deal with the haters? How do you deal with people that are against what you stand for? Yeah. And I think it's the same for me where I try to look at the positive because to me, what the mission is, is more important than any of my hurt feelings about how people are potentially perceiving what the mission is. You've said that some members have had to lie to their parents about training with She Fighter. Oh, yeah, definitely. So tell me a little bit about that. (laughs) I mean, you know, when girls want to change their lives, it's so hard to be honest with the people around them sometimes. They need to take steps by themselves. And 
they used to come to training and uh, they used to tell their parents we're just going to a regular gym, right? Because right. she fighter her message is different. It's like empowering women, you know, physically and psychologically. And it's an environment where all women can gather and just share thoughts. They can be whoever they want to be. So it's a very safe environment. So we got a lot of girls who, for example, changed their minds after also meeting all these wonderful, amazing women. And some of them had to take different decisions in their lives that their parents thought that it's the reason behind she fighter that they started thinking that way. But I believe these women were looking for something to just give them the push to take a decision. Yes. It's not that right. we actually, you know, empowered them in a way to take different decisions. It's up to them, of course. But like taking yeah. different decisions in their lives, like they need to start looking outside of their community, trying to just sit with other people, know their opinion. And honestly, I had like good relationship with all the parents and all the even husbands and uh, wives of uh, of the trainees. And I used to call them and talk to them. Like, for example, I had one girl and she was covered wearing the hijab and she decided that she doesn't want to longer put it. So she took it off. For of me, of course, I did not know that. I mean, I do not because girls come to the training and they take it off anyway. So I cannot know right. that who's right. actually covered or not. Because inside she fighter, everyone take it off, of course. And uh, her parents called me and they're like, she took it off because of you and because of she fighter. And what are you doing and impacting our children? She was not a ch child at that time. It was like she was 22 or something. But I talked to the parents, you know, I told them, you know, um, your daughter maybe have different decisions. Have I tried to talk to them, you know, I told them, why don't you come have a coffee with me? You know, we can discuss it. I always, when people, you know, try to, you know, tell me it's your fault, I always look at it as uh, I put myself in their shoe and I would say, yeah, they're just upset. They're going to be okay later on. So this girl, right. they did not let her come to the training for about a year. And she was like crying every day, calling me like, I want to come to the training. They're not letting me. Wow. In. But after a year, her parents just gave up. <laughs> so she came back to training and she's happy. I mean, it takes time for change and you need to prove to others that you are standing strong on your decisions. You're not just playing around with these decisions. So I always support girls. On the UN-designated International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, we see around 1,000 crying, my dress, my choice in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. This protest follows women being stripped naked and assaulted in public for wearing miniskirts. When you first started this, how did you get funding? Like, I did not get any funding. <laughs> I did you not. Didn't. I was working part-time in the family business and they actually fired me four times from the family business. I had to create... <laughs> it's funny that because it's very male-dominated, our family business is very male-dominated. There's like maybe four girls working and like hundred something men. So every time I have to give a decision, they're like, uh, Lena, maybe you don't really know better than men. And they had to make a fight because you cannot talk to me like that. So the fourth time I was like, I'm done. Like I made some money <laughs> and I'm going to start buying equipments to start the training. And that's how I started. I started so small within around, I, I used to have like a around $1,000 US dollars. And I bought some equipments and I started talking to my uh, friends, colleagues, everyone who wants to try the training for free. I started talking in different schools for free. I started spreading a lot of awareness. 
I mean, I did not see it that big, but I, I felt it's in the, I'm going in the right path. Everyone else, of course, like also my family, because they come from a business background and they told me this is not a business. It's not serious. You need to get rid of it at some point. But they do not have my vision. And they told them I see it as a huge brand. And it's not just about the training, the studios. It's going to be a brand like women will be will say we are a she fighter. And it's actually started to happen. And later on, they believed me after they saw that <laughs> there is some results. <laughs> and yeah, and success. Yeah. So what I did is through the training, so I usually get like a lot of people coming sometimes with different backgrounds, you know, sometimes mental health issues, all these uh, things. And I tell them, don't worry about what you're thinking now, just go on with the training. And as we provide them with the training, we keep talking to them positively, like you can do it, it's okay. And if they start talking badly to themselves, we tell them like, this is a place where you cannot talk to yourself badly. You can, mm. you can just talk to yourself positively. And then they mm. start talking to themselves in a different way. Like we can do it. It's just in my head or all of these things. Later on after, like I had one case where she was in a severe depression. She wanted to commit suicide because she was a ballet dancer and she had to be taken off ballet for a long time. And then she felt useless after that. And after the three days of training, she told me, you changed my life. I cannot stop this. I feel so happy. I can show up my body. You know, I used to feel that I'm skinny and ugly. And now I can just be confident. I can wear tank tops. I can wear leggings. I can just be myself. And I want to just help others because you helped me. So it's like a movement where you just inspire others. And these women will help others. And it goes really big. So sometimes people just want to be heard in different ways. They just want someone to listen to them, understand them and give them something, give them a purpose in life because they might not find it. So, so it is you, actually would changing you say that, a lot. Would you say that when women walk away from the experience that you hope they take away a better sense of themselves, a feeling of empowerment, what do you hope that they take away? I hope they would take away all the time confidence confidence because it solves a lot of problems later on. Mm. If you're if you believe in yourself, everything else is gonna it's gonna be fine. You're gonna be fine. You just have to have this belief. If you start, you know, talking to yourself badly, you're gonna crash at some point. You're gonna fall. You're gonna you're gonna feel sorry for yourself. And you know, people face a lot of challenges and they need to know that. They need to be fighters. They need to be strong. They need to toughen up. Even I'm also talking about like the boys and the girls, they need really to toughen up, stop talking badly to themselves and just move on with life, you know, because life goes forward. And if you keep living in the past, you're not going to make any movement later on. You're not going to even change your life. You're going to be stuck in the past. You're going to feel sorry for yourself. You're going to cry a lot on the past and you're not going to make any changes in the future. So they need to shift the way they're thinking. That's it. They need to think about their thoughts. They need to create a positive environment as well. We've been talking a lot about what you've given your students and what you teach your students. What do you think that you've learned through this process about yourself? Oh, I, learned, I learned a lot. I think it was a journey for me also from the first place, not just others. 
I found myself through that journey because I thought at the beginning, I just want to teach women self-defense, right? And everyone is happy. Later on, I started growing. I started growing in my thoughts. I started meeting different women all over the world. And I became different. I started even thinking about the thoughts I'm thinking about. Like, why do I have these thoughts? What emotions do I have about these experiences? How can I use it to grow even bigger? How can I inspire women? And I started growing. It took me years, honestly. It took me, like, from the moment I started until now, I would say 10 years ago at the basement of my parents' house, And it's just 10 years of a huge change in my life, in my mind, in my career, and definitely myself, who I am, like who I I really am in this world, why I'm here, and what's my calling. So it did help me a lot. And I learned a lot how to deal with men legally as well. (laughs) Yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about when you were sued? Oh, yeah. So I got sued one time by a lawyer who happened to have a wife at She Fighter. She was training uh, for like a couple of years. Probably she had like an argument with him and she used self-defense against him. So <laughs> she really punched him in the face at that time, I guess. And then and then they sued you? He sued me for teaching her self-defense. I'm like, this Amazing. is like a joke. <laughs> that guy is oh just, my- you know, he, he's just bored or something. But I had to deal with it because I live in Jordan and the laws are not really with women. They're most of the time against women and they do not stand with the favor of women. They stand with the favor of men and family. So I had to act smart about it. I hired a lawyer and we had to talk to him on the phone like, um, you know, what do you want? You know, you sued us, but what do you want just to drop uh, these cases? And he said, I don't want my wife to come to training I don't want my wife to ever talk about, you know, she fighter or I'm like, okay, I cannot control if she want to talk about it or not, but I can control that she doesn't come anymore. And sadly, I had to do this because it was the best for the business and I need to keep this business running and going. I cannot have these, you know, haters just shut down my business. Of course. Of course. How old are people when they come to you? I have a lot of teenagers, kids, and university students. So the majority that comes, they are young, very young. They also look for, like, they're just discovering themselves. They're passionate. They just love change. I love the mentality of youth because they're just, they accept anything new. I get a lot of women who are mothers, and I have a small percent who are grandmothers. So... Different age groups, but the majority are young, they're youth. I'm just interested to know if you have any advice for raising a young girl that you could maybe share. Definitely, I have an advice. If she faces, let's say, someone in the training, one at her that day, or like he hurt her, tell her that it's okay. It's okay to be hurt. Like, do not really give her a lot of attention that this is not okay and we need to, you know, take our daughter from training because you're actually raising her to face life. And life is full of challenges and life is full of punches and life is full of haters and this dark side. We do have a good side and there's also a dark side. But when we take care of our children a lot, all the time, trying to protect them, you have to know in the future, you might not be around to take care of them. They need to take care of themselves. And by learning, I would say all the time to parents, if your kids are, let's say, riding the bicycle for the first time, if they fall, don't just, you know, don't give them that much attention. Just tell them, get on the bike again. Or like, of course, give them a hug or whatever. (laughs) Then tell them, get on the bike again. Do not give up. 
because I can see different children act depends on how their parents react. So if their parents start, right. you know, screaming or like, oh, she hurt herself or she she just injured or you're overprotective, they feel that they're scared. They cannot take any risk because you're going to be so protected on them. You have to show them that it's okay. It's okay to fall. It's okay to be injured. It's okay to be hurt. It's okay. That's life. Just keep going. What is your hope for the future? Hope for the future. I'm always positive about the future. It's actually coming now to life, but like a lot of women leaders around the world and a lot of women who we look up to. If you have a strong leadership, just take charge of this leadership. Don't just hide. I always tell my friends, like, I would take a leadership role. I wouldn't hide because I do have this positive influence on people and I just want to do it. I don't want to hide or just go meditate on a mountain or, or do all these things while other people are taking charge of the world and they're just bad. They're bad leaders. So I would say just if you're good, if you know you have leadership skills, take charge because we need those leaders. Well, Lena, I am so happy that our paths crossed. And thank you so much for talking with me today. Hello, my name is Kawala. I fight for justice and political transition in Cameroon. Sorry, not sorry. For my listeners who might not know what the political environment in Cameroon is like, can you just walk us through the political landscape there? Yes. So Cameroon, it's always surprising when we say this, a Cameroon is a country that gained independence in 1960 for the French-speaking part of the country and 1961 for the English-speaking part of the country. We were colonized by both the British and the French. And we are thus almost 60 years independent. And within that time, we have had two presidents. Yes, two. (laughs) And our first president, uh, Amadou Ahijo, was president from the time of independence till 1982. And for the last 38 years, we have had the same president. His name is Paul Bia. So very obviously, we live in a dictatorship. It may not look like that sometimes because we are able to go on the radio. We are able to criticize the president. We go through an electoral cycle. The president's mandate is seven years. So every seven years, we go through what looks like an election. But the system is completely locked down to keep Mr. Bia and the entire regime in power. And so if you actually do anything that threatens the power, you'll find out very quickly and very violently that this is a dictatorship. You were the first woman to run for president in your country, which is amazing. Just tell us about that experience. Were there obstacles that you faced specifically because you're a woman? Absolutely. I decided to run for president because In spite of everything that I've told you, Cameroon is an extraordinary country. It's very, very rich in resources. You name the resources, we have it. From oil to gold to diamonds to cobalt to extraordinary conditions for agriculture, 
our tourism slogan is Africa in miniature because we have every single ecosystem on the continent of Africa in our country. So we should be a rich country. We have enough resources in our country to let every Cameroonian have the basics. Unfortunately, the way the country has been run, we have 40% of Cameroonians who don't have access to drinking water. We have 50% who don't have access to electricity and basic services, education, healthcare, and so on are just not accessible to most of the population. So in 2011, I decided that there was no reason, there was no reason I was sick and tired of being somebody who is from a rich country and having over 40% of the population live in abject poverty. So I decided to run for president because I thought we deserve better. We as Cameroonians deserve better leadership. We deserve better governance, better management, and we deserve to be able to get basic services to our citizens. Um, Yes, I uh, encountered very, very expected and unexpected problems. So this is a dictatorship. So if you decide to run, you're taking a risk. It means that you may find yourself in jail. You may be arrested. You may find yourself with the government committing acts of violence against you. So some of the things that happened, I think may have happened whether I was a, a you know, a man or a woman. We went out for protests. I have been arrested numerous times <laughs> in Cameroon. I have been kidnapped once by the presidential guard. I have been water hosed in the streets. And I think that some of those things may have happened to a man, even though the establishment in Cameroon, the regime, is particularly offended because I am a woman. I think that uh, the fact that a woman would stand up to them is something they have difficulty getting their their heads around. And this provokes sometime in them a very, very irrational, violent reactions. What drives you? What keeps you motivated? I have a profound belief in the people of Cameroon. I have been lucky enough in my professional life and in my political life to travel through the 10 regions of the country and to connect with people, get to know people in these regions. And I have met Cameroonians who fight for justice, fight for better services for their community, who fight to have their children go to a better school, who fight to be able to have access to water, who fight to be able to take the products from their farms to a market. And I am a privileged Cameroonian. There's no doubt about it. I grew up in a middle class to upper class home. I had an international education I have been able to travel the world and work in many places in the world. And I think that 
When I am confronted with Cameroonians who have nothing, who make barely enough money to survive, and yet who stand up against this system to demand their basic rights, I feel like the least that I can do, the very least that I can do is stand up with them. I think that we deserve so much more as a people, as a country. We are a blessed country. We have been given so much and it remains a complete outrage to me that with everything that we have as resources, that our people should be poor. And so that belief that I have in the people of Cameroon is, it's, I think it, it, it fuels me. It enables me to continue to stand strong. All of the political leadership that I have done has been with people. It is all about building up our power as a people to stand up to this system. And we have won so many little battles along the way. We have overcome so many hurdles that it gives us this incredible strength and courage. Good afternoon. Africa is receiving a tremendous amount of the world's attention right now. The lions are roaring. Africa is rising. The last economic frontier. We are making both headlines and front pages in a way that we have not done for decades. So this is a time of tremendous opportunity for Africa. However, this moment must be approached carefully and with strategy. I think that when you're fighting injustice, there's an energy, there's a power, there's a calmness in the face of violence that comes. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. And it doesn't mean that you're not afraid. It would be stupid not to be afraid in our system. Of course, when we go out on the streets for a protest and we are facing men with guns and we are nonviolent protesters, yes, we are afraid. But we overcome that fear, one, because we are together, and two, because we have a sense of building something for ourselves. You're working on the ground in Cameroon to help citizens build their influence in national policies, which is amazing. Thank you for doing that work. Tell us about what that work entails and your organization, Cameroon Obasso. Yes. So when I got into politics, I understood very quickly that Cameroonians had divorced themselves from politics. They had kind of abandoned the political arena and left it to these very violent, very domineering regime. And so what we thought is, how do we educate people? How do we let people know about their rights? How do we empower people so that they can begin to fight the smaller battles, the battles that are about getting a clean market for market women, the battles that are about health care. Cameroon has a very, very high rate of maternal mortality. How do we help women 
to come together and demand better health care? How do we, when there are cases of human rights violations in communities, how do we help those communities to stand up for their rights? And so we created the organization called Cameroon Oboso, which is a citizenship movement. It's an organization that works on the rights of any Cameroonian, any group of Cameroonians can come towards us knowing that their rights are being violated or feeling that they're in a situation where they will need to go to a negotiating table or advocate for what is their interests as a community. And we will work with them to educate them, first of all, very often on political economies so that they understand who is making decisions in their community, why are those decisions being made, who can be their allies, who are the people that they're going to go up against, and also how they're going to do that. So we are very, very strong believers in nonviolent action. So we train communities on nonviolent action. And Cameroon Oboso has evolved with the political party that I am at the head of, with other political parties and with other civil society organizations. And today we form a movement called Stand Up for Cameroon. It's a movement that is focused on getting political transition for Cameroon, so putting an end to the current political system and enabling us as a people to be able to sit down and decide what our future is going to look like. The Cameroonian government cannot continue to claim that it protects human rights when in actual fact the human rights violations are continuing with unlawful killings, torture, violations of the right to assembly, freedom of association, freedom of expression, and the persecution and prosecution of people accused of same-sex sexual relations. Unfortunately, the government is not taking any action whatsoever to end human rights violations, particularly of those people whom it does not seem to care about. The steps for us are nonviolent protests to a massive level that will bring an end to the regime, and then having what we call a national dialogue, being able to sit down and take a look at what has happened to us as a people and redefining ourselves, redetermining who we're going to be as a nation and deciding what kinds of institutions we want, what kind of relationship we want between the citizen and the state, what kind of relationship we want between each other, And only then for us does it make sense to hold elections in Cameroon and to go into a cycle now where we would be electing new officials. So within this movement, you will find groups that are fighting for various kinds of rights. But we have all determined that none of us, whether you're a market woman or you are a motorbike taxi driver or you are a woman who's fighting for your rights to healthcare, none of us is going to get our rights as long as we live in this system where we do not have freedom. And so we're building together to be able to make that change. What part has Vital Voices contributed to your success? 
Tell me about the work they do. Vital Voices, it's a huge family of women. (laughs) It's an amazing, amazing place. One, because it's a model that I, I work with a lot of partners and I have not seen another partner that actually works that way because Vital Voices doesn't come to you with a program. They don't come to you with a training package. They don't come to you and say, well, this is the path that we're going to follow to get change. They come to you and say, you are a woman leader. What are you doing and how can we help you? And I think that that paradigm is amazing because of course, the people who effect change in any country, in any community, are the people who are actually living there and who have already begun to make that change happen. Vital Voices is really unique in its model. And I think one of the amazing things that happens in Vital Voices is the connection between us as women leaders. So whenever we have an event, a moment, a platform where Vital Voices brings women together, the first thing that happens is that leadership is lonely. You have to make decisions. You have to bring other people along. You have to show strength, even in moments where you yourself are not very sure of what it is you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it. And I think one of the greatest things that happens at Vital Voices Gatherings is that you meet your peers, you meet other women who are leading, who are leading very often in extremely difficult situations and who immediately connect and understand where you're coming from. So you come into this space, you come into this circle where there is safety, where you can let down your hair, where you can talk about all of the challenges that you have as a woman leader. And then I think the other thing that happens with Vital Voices is that we have the possibility of working together on problems or challenges that are bigger than all of us. So as Vital Voices, we will come together and say, what can we do to strengthen women's leadership in global institutions like the World Bank, like the IMF, and so on? We will come together and say, how do we want to impact? What what is going to be our role as we fight against COVID-19 in each of our countries? What do we need to keep in mind as the entire globe is shifting, as we are forcibly going to be redefining relationships and institutions and so on? What do we want to make sure we get into that conversation as women leaders? And finally, are there ways people around the world can support you in your goals? Of course, in Cameroon, everything (laughs) is to be done. But I think specifically, one is that as we are building this transformation of our country that I'm talking about, one of the things that we are very, very purposeful about is to ensure that we are building an inclusive society. Ensure that the people who are leading this change are women, are people who are coming from rural areas, are the urban poor, are people who have been left out of decision-making 
and out of any form of participation, political participation in our country for the last 60 years. So one of the key things that we need help on is always helping those groups have the skills and have the ability and build the channels to be able to participate. So people can help us with training women leaders, which we are continuously doing, training youth leaders, which we are continuously doing. It's through a very well thought out process that we train on nonviolence and that we help people to respond to a violent system with nonviolence. So helping us as we build up this movement is definitely something that people can do. And we have a Facebook page, Stand Up for Cameroon. They can go on the Facebook page and see a lot of our activities and be able to contribute to our activities from there. Another thing that is possible for people to help us do right now, we're looking for help as we step into the eye of the storm of COVID-19. So you can imagine how devastating this is for us in a country that barely has a healthcare system, that does not have running water in many, many parts of the country. And our government has once again put up a very, very poor response to COVID-19. So we are organizing ourselves right now as citizens, as a civil society, to be able to help communities respond to COVID-19. So any help that we can get in that area as we help to organize people, help them to be able to determine in their communities who is sick, help them to be able to get access to the little bit of healthcare that is there, any kind of assistance in this area, My name is Isra Al-Shafi. I work to amplify underrepresented voices in my community. Sorry, not sorry. Isra, talk to me about Majal, the organization that you founded. Yeah, so I come from Bahrain and I run an organization called Majal. And Majal is the Arabic word for creating an opportunity. And I founded this organization in 2006 because at the time, of course, growing up in a country where there was so little freedom of expression where censorship and surveillance was the norm. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to use the power and influence of technology to amplify underrepresented and marginalized voices in my community. So that's pretty much how Majal was born. And you grew up in Bahrain Mm -hmm. and you're working to promote and protect free speech in the Middle East and North Africa, which is just amazing. So tell us how that work differs in that part of the world than it does in the West. It's different because in the Middle East and North Africa, we are surrounded by very repressive governments where our voices are consistently suppressed, where our very identities, if you're a member of the LGBTQI community, for example, is criminalized. And so it adds that much more pressure. When we see a lot of the nonprofit organizations and their struggles in the West, a lot of them are about financial sustainability, 
fundraising issues, visibility, marketing. But in the Middle East and North Africa, a lot of the times it's security concerns. It's literal survival of the organization, Mm. of the work, of the mission. So it just adds that much more challenges and obstacles that are very difficult to bypass. And you use technology in truly amazing, innovative ways to try to protect communities and do your important work. Tell us more about the role technology plays in what you're doing. Technology for me has really been the gateway to access to information and freedom of expression. Censorship and surveillance are the norm in the Middle East, and technology has really opened the gateway to freedom of speech in our oppressive societies. So we use technology to charge forward and find creative ways to fuel the struggle for social justice. I was able to find creative ways to highlight persecuted voices in our societies through, for example, music. So one of our applications, Midi Stunes, serves as a space for independent musicians who use music as a tool for social justice advocacy. And that has really been a way for us to bypass a lot of the surveillance issues. So, you know, you go to Midi Stunes and you see a lot of women using hip hop to talk about gender identity You see Kurdish youth talk about the right to exist, the right to have a culture, the right to speak their language in countries where their culture is very suppressed. And so music has given us that power and that capability to amplify that many more voices, especially now with technology, we can just stream it through many different devices and platforms. And so when people go to listen to music, they're really able to kind of connect with so many different communities that we have actually been forbidden to even communicate with growing up. Hmm. And just to back up for a little bit, will you describe for my listeners what life is like for LGBTQ people in the Middle East and North Africa? For me personally, it is definitely a very suppressive environment for our community where there's a lot of urgent need. A lot of people with dire life-threatening situations, if they were outed, for example, and they really need support, it's not something that you could just walk into a counseling or a clinic or go and request legal assistance, for example. I mean, this is a place where you can't really be yourself where your very identity is threatened on a daily basis. Mm. You experience bullying. The law is not on your side. So you can't, for example, sue your employer for terminating your contract because you are a queer person, for example. Countries around the world mark Gay Pride Month with parades and parties. Members of the LGBTQ community in countries across the Middle East don't all have the right to celebrate. Homosexuality is illegal in 11 of the 18 states and territories that make up the region and punishable by death in six of these. So it is not where we'd like it to be. And that's really where we turn to technology because we feel it's really the only place where we can truly be ourselves without prejudice. I feel like there's no boundaries with technology. It it almost feels like time travel, right? Like you can be totally across the globe in the same exact moment and really be hearing like firsthand accounts of stories of repression, of divisiveness. And I think it's the great equalizer in that capacity. Exactly. And it also connects us to a lot of personal stories. You know, when people go to these platforms, they can hear the music, they can hear stories of LGBTQ youth 
in their authentic voices, I think it puts a human face to a lot of these challenges where it's not just a news story or a statistic, but these are real human beings on the other side trying to express themselves, express their identity, cultural identity, sexual identity. It has definitely empowered us in a way that we never really felt empowered before technology was in the picture. And I mean, this is kind of a sensitive question, and I don't want to put your security more at risk, but does this work that you're doing actually endanger your safety and security? Yes, because the work I do is very controversial. And on top of the work that I do visibly, there's also a lot of work that I do on the grassroots level. So for the sake of my personal security, for example, I have to be physically anonymous. So when you search for my name, you'll see a lot of articles, a lot of information about me, but no videos that show my face. When I give talks, they're always completely anonymous and off the record. Wow. And I have to be physically anonymous in every way, no images whatsoever. And in this day and age, it's actually extremely challenging. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I mean, you were surrounded by so much surveillance, facial recognition software, but also social media where people are encouraged to snap photos and upload them. And especially when I do go out and I give talks about this kind of work, people do get shocked because sometimes a lot of the time, people who are on the front line are very visible. You know, you know what they look like. They're speaking at the UN. They're speaking at all of these different mm-hmm, forums mm-hmm. and conferences. But in my case, I think there's always some level of shock that sometimes people really don't know who I really am, you know, and and sometimes it's challenging because it ends up meaning that I can't really be that visible. And that means it is very difficult to kind of sustain these initiatives and keep this kind of work visible without having a human face. Um, Because I also encourage my team not to be overly visible. And so we're all sort of working in, in this type of environment where we have to be as safe as we possibly can and put the highlight on the actual work, but not on us ourselves as individuals. I'm just curious as to what drives you. I mean, if your security is at risk, what keeps you motivated in the face of such personal risk? I think for me, it has always been the ideal society. And I feel I would never be comfortable living in a society where I felt didn't live up to my expectations or anybody's expectations. I mean, everybody has a right to live with dignity, with privacy, with, you know, just basic human rights. And if every day we wake up and we are not outspoken to make sure that that will be a reality, it's a very difficult thing not to accept that responsibility because we have to get up and fight on a daily basis for the kind of progress that we want to see. And I've been doing this work now for 15 years and the progress has been, it takes so much time and there's so much tedious work that happens in between. A lot of the times people think mobilizing a community, everything has to happen in a month. You know, you have to go out there and tweet, have a hashtag. And then what happens after that is people kind of move on to the next big thing. And persistence is so important. Consistency is so important. That's really where the value comes from because only a decade later have I actually started to see the fruits of our team's effort in our direct societies. That must feel so good. I mean, I just know from my activism work, it seems like it seems like we're in for heartbreak probably 98% of the time. And we really have to learn to be okay with like the smaller wins. 
because obviously the incremental win is what makes up the big win, hopefully, eventually. And I think in America, we really take that freedom to speak out against injustice. I feel like we take that for granted sometimes. So I guess my question for you would be, what advice would you give to Americans who are facing injustice from the perspective of someone who has a different set of risks in addressing it? I would say to absolutely take advantage of every right you have to speak about those injustices and to highlight them and to encourage and mobilize and just build movements around it, knowing how much hard work it will be and accepting also that for the most part, you will be walking alone. You, you're not going to mobilize an entire community right away. A lot of people are oversaturated with information. A lot of people are not in a position to help. A lot of people are concerned. A lot of people don't have the resources. And that's okay. That's all part of the struggle. This was not meant to be easy. But every single person definitely does have the power and influence to have that level of impact, however small, because even those small steps actually translate to such huge steps, the more you just take them, because it's just about the distance, you know, we take little steps, and then where we actually end up after 15 years, for example, and you turn back and you realize, wow, we actually made a lot of progress. And I think in the US, for example, there are so many more opportunities to speak up, so many more resources afforded to those yes. types of community. I mean, my work is considered illegal. I can't register as a nonprofit organization. So when people want to fund us, we have to go figure out legal loopholes. We have to go figure out where do we set up a bank account? I mean, here you can set up a 501c3, go create a bank account. I mean, there are, there are rights, there are procedures in place to actually have this kind of environment where there are nonprofits and you're organizing and there are communities. In many parts of the world, this is considered criminal activity. Just the act of speaking up is considered political opposition. People get killed for it on a daily basis. So I think no one should take this right for granted. It is such an important right to have, and it's a right that we're fighting for every single day. What does leadership mean to you? Leadership to me, I would say, is really just taking the first step fearlessly mm. and taking every risk with it and just having respect for the process. So, I mean, I think it's so important to lead with authenticity and lead with strength and lead with just no regrets and just accepting that you will make mistakes on the way. But you have to take that first step. And I think that first step is really what leadership is all about. And then again, coming back to the consistency and persistence of continuously taking those steps, because it's not really leadership. You can be a self-starter, you can be a founder, a creator, but a leadership means that persistence of just continuing, even against the harshest conditions, including risking your life. And what do you think, I mean, you've been doing this for 15 years now, what does success look like for you and Majal? Success looks like freedom and access to information, freedom of speech. It really looks like more people coming out and speaking in their own voices so that nobody has to take away that agency from them and that power that they have. It's freedom of movement. It's just the right to be yourself. So I think success for me is having all of those basic rights that many countries do enjoy. But I mean, if I were to wake up in Bahrain and look at the region as a whole and be able to be myself without fear, without any reservations, yeah, that would be success to me. How can people in America support your work to help you achieve that success? What can we all do to help? 
The best way to help is to increase the visibility. A lot of people, when they look at the Middle East and North Africa, they think women are weak, that women are not empowered. But the thing is, is that so many of the civil society organizations, so much of the creativity is actually coming from women leaders in the region. So if you go to a place like Midi Students, for example, and you listen to some of the music there, I mean, a lot of them are women hip hop artists from anywhere from Saudi Arabia to Iran to Libya, you know, heavy metal musicians. And a lot of them are just really using that medium, for example, to talk about the things that impact them on a daily basis and as a way for them to express their identities. And so when we go and you kind of understand really what women, what minorities, what marginalized communities in the region are really all about, I think that is really the best way to kind of humanize the population as much as possible. Because I think it's so important, especially whoever the U.S. votes for ends up having so much influence over our lives, whether there's a conflict or whether there's an intervention or whether there's a military occupation. It's so important for people to understand who we are as human beings. And for that to happen, they have to hear our stories in our own voices. And so I do encourage people to go to platforms like Majal, but there are so many more like it and to fish for that kind of content, and then to support that content if they were able to do so with whatever that they could, whether it's volunteering with technical expertise or financially supporting our organization so we can sustain some of the legal cost of running these things. But otherwise, I mean, just amplifying those voices is so important to us. Amazing. And I think you're right. I think we do have a tendency to forget that every country is made up of families and people that all bring their own stories, their own identity, their own culture to their lives. And the beauty of especially this time with the internet is that we have no excuse not to learn about someone across the globe and what's in their heart. So I thank you so much for doing this work and thank you for being a part of the podcast. Even though women hold the majority of professional level jobs, we are incredibly underrepresented as leaders. In Fortune 500 companies, which are the 500 most powerful companies in the nation, if not the world, women make up 4% of the CEOs. Women hold 19% of executive level jobs. In our US Congress, women hold 20% of elected positions. Even in female-dominated professions like education, we are outnumbered at the leadership level. I have never had a high school principal or an elementary school principal or a middle school principal of my kids be anything but a man. And when I looked it up, 30% of high school principals in the U.S. are female. That's it. These voices, our voices, are vital. I'll leave you today with a poem by Emily Dickinson. They shut me up in prose. They shut me up in prose, as when a little girl, they put me in the closet because they liked me still, still. Could themselves have peeped and seen my brain go round? They might as wise have lodged a bird for treason in the pound. Himself has but to will and easy as a star, lock down upon captivity and laugh. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. That's my boy. 
please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, 